This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model, training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. Right now, the um, the half the Congress is Democratic, and I, I can't see that changing. That's those seats, you know, it, it, there is no, there is almost no risk of, you know, half of Congress flipping back to red. Um, but there's a pretty good chance with what's going on of the Senate control of the purse strings flipping back to the Democratic Party. And there's, there's one thing we haven't talked about also with this coronavirus uh, pan, epidemic, pandemic, um, the, you know, it's been a number of stories we've published, others have published lately about the food industries yep. being the hardest hit now, uh, meatpacking industries uh, being the hardest hit and some of them shutting down um, and uh, basically across food the food food services industry it's it's really dramatic and uh you know they were if you look at just at the agricultural sector it was already suffering immensely due to the the trade war with china and there was you know sort of uh, a lot of you know i saw a lot of interviews a lot of discussions with people who had voted for trump and were like regretting it um, some who, say, who said it, the whole situation was horrible, but they would support him again because of who knows what. Uh, but, you know, you, you sort of pile these matters on the China trade war, you know, taking a hammer to U.S. agriculture and then the coronavirus uh, oh. taking a hammer to, to you know, these. Well, agriculture has been being hit by hit hard was hit hard in the past couple of years by climate change as well. The rain bombs in Nebraska and neighboring states are core Trump territory and they were devastated by massive flooding. It's going to take a decade to, you know, get back to the same productivity again. You know, they, they lost yards of topsoil from everything and it was replaced by clay on product fields that have been productive for 30 years. It's going to take a long time to sort that out. You know, uh, but you just pile those one on top of it another. You know, it, it 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 sometimes amazes me. You know that people support um, the Republicans through these different problems um, when they're you know sort of creating the problem more more than so, anyone. But so you know you sort of pile, but you pile them on top of each other, and you end up with you know then you really must get some tipping points where people either just stay home or flip. And, and this is where I think Florida is. Um, I think I I, I I'm seeing Biden take Florida, you know, strongly. And that's 29 electoral college votes this year. Uh, it's more in the next election with adjustments. Um, but you look, look at what's happening with Florida. Uh, clear sky flooding. You're looking at, um, you know, increasing awareness of the cost. 
uh, you know, Louisiana, which is right next door, and uh, it's actually in the projected path of one of the hurricanes if you have a Sharpie. Um, but they have a, they've got a new study that came out for a 4,700-person town in Louisiana. It's going to cost a billion dollars to protect it from rising seas. That's going to be news. It's going to be news in Florida. We have the 1.6 million um, reenfranchised former prisoners in Florida. Um, we have the Biden change. We have yeah, the that, that might. I'm not sure where that stands because Republicans ha- had a clever way of reversing that, despite the state voting like mm, two. The re-enfranchisement, yeah, yeah it's like insane. I, I, yeah, that one was, um, you know, what they did was they basically found a way to say they have to pay every single fine they'd ever had <laughs> to everybody and prove it with receipts before they'd be allowed to register to vote. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of get out the vote initiatives <clears throat> trying to make sure that that happens. Uh, the second you. thing, though, is let's let's talk about beaches because we started this conversation through chat as we were preparing for this call. Let's talk about Florida's beaches and let's talk about snowbirds. Let's talk about the percentage of Florida's economy that's dependent upon winter tourism. It's a lot. I went back to that study. Now, the study was beach sand replenishment strategic risks for the state of Florida. Um, And that's where I got the number of of, just over 50% of the economy of Florida came from beaches. It was all aspects. It was all recreation and tourism uh, affiliated with beaches. It's huge. Beaches are already massively under threat because, well, with the past few storm seasons and storm surge, there's been a tremendous amount of sand ripped away. And I mean, one of the biggest issues in Southwest Florida here is, has been red tide, which is yeah. nothing like it was when I was a kid. Like we never, almost never had red tide. It closed down beaches and the beach restaurants, beach everything. Uh, you couldn't even go out there for many months, um, which was already like the big question mark of how businesses were going to survive. So, yeah. <laughs> you know. And you know, one of the horror stories that I read was, you know, fairly early on in this, guy was down there, snowboardish journalist. He was like in his early, mid-50s or 60s, and he was refurbishing a boat. You know, he bought a boat, and he was refurbishing it as kind of a winter project and writing about it. And basically, he figured out at a certain point in, you know, early March or late February how bad this was. And he got in a car with prepackaged food that he'd wiped down and disinfected and drove without interacting with anybody all the way back to Canada. Um, and, you know, every mile, every 10 miles, he could tell that people were taking it more seriously, but nobody was taking it seriously in Florida. Now, what's happened there is that all the Canadians and all the people from Northern United States who used to go to Florida and mingle with other seniors in the sunshine and get escape the winter, are they going to do that this winter? The beaches are most beaches are gone. There's red tide, and now there's coronavirus, and they don't have jobs. Their four hundred one ks are shot. All the money that used to flow into Florida for six months of the year, most of that won't be there, and that'll that that hit will be happening at voting time in November. Yeah, and at the moment, I mean, it's very easy to see two million unemployed. Um, we're, we're getting getting up there already. Um, that's ten percent of the state. <laughs> that's ten, state of Florida is twenty one million people. You know, not, not yep. counting snowbirds who are, reside elsewhere. 
10% of the state being unemployed and having a broken, last I saw it was like 40,000 of the one and a half million were able to get through the system. Uh, you know, like, I, I don't know what the situation is right now, but it's still extremely broken. You're going to, you know, some of those people are going to be Democrats. Some of those people are going to be uh, people who support Trump no matter what. They think uh, the media did it to them or whatever. Uh, but there's going to be a decent portion of 10% of the state who thinks, man, I got really screwed. And they're going to look at Biden smiling and, you know, thinking of that era when they had a, a better life. And um, I think it's going to be hard for people to vote. I mean, but, but you know, one, one topic um, I would come to, though, is we have a long ways to go. And elections are ridiculously fickle. Uh, and we have, um, we have sort of a, a kind of, we have no idea where we're going to be in, in October, November. We expect things are still going to be horrible for people. But, you know, it's sort of the last week of the, of the, before voting that often ends up deciding things, you know, um, when they're close. Uh, so we, we, I don't want to say anything with certainty. It just, at the moment, it looks ridiculously um, bad for Trump. But also, I would just, um, I'm curious your thoughts on sort of the, you know, considering how superficial and fickle people are with voting, I'm always, I'm convinced a lot of it always just comes down to personality and also just a kind of um, how, how well campaigns do at focusing on one or two topics. And uh, with Hillary, you know, that you had this ridiculous case of almost all of the media coverage being about her emails, which uh, people probably still don't realize was uh, nothing compared to what Trump and his family are doing uh, with insecure private uh, uh, phone use and whatnot in the U.S. and abroad in uh, foreign yep. countries. It's, it's absurdly lower level of risk, what she, her situation compared to what, what they've been doing. But there was this constant focus making it seem like a big deal. Yep. And with, with Biden, again, I, I don't think they have a lot to cling to, but there, there's a clear focus right now on uh, a kind of one, one case of uh, potential um, well, there's two things, right? There's Hunter Biden, and then there's the, you know, allegations of sexual uh, yeah. abuse. So there's an allegation issue. And well, I think there's, I don't know if they're coming back to Biden. I don't know. But the, there's the allegations. And then there's the, they're trying to focus on him being, um, losing, you know, being, becoming senile oh, or something, senile. Yeah. which is, which is ridiculous. In my opinion, if you look at it, he's, if you compare him to Trump, <laughs> well, if you compare him, even if you don't, if you just look at him, go on a long interview about he has an enormous wealth of knowledge and is extremely crisp and firm on of course he loses his his uh, memory on something here or there or well there's there's three or four things going on there so one of the things is a lot of this goes back to tv presidents jfk versus nixon jfk looked really good on tv he looked presidential nixon had a five o'clock shadow and looked shifty. <laughs> he was shifty. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it was a case where transparency, which is, you know, a, a big theme of one of Malcolm Gladwell's recent book was the transparency fallacy, where we believe that people are the way that they appear and they come across when, you know, 40% of the populace doesn't actually pattern to sitcom, uh, you, you know, emotive transparency. So, you know, um, 
is, is that a real statistic or you just yeah no facial expressions don't transmit across cultures and they don't transmit within cultures they've done a whole bunch of psychological studies on this and basically there are people who look guilty and there are people who look innocent and it rarely has anything to do with whether they're guilty or innocent and the only time we're successful at determining what a person's emotional state is is when their facial expression happens to be pretty well aligned with what our perception of it is. And of course, some actors or actresses get put in certain roles over and over because they just look like... And, and, yeah, and you, Tom you Hanks. Think, yeah, you think of them. They're, they're, they're transparent. But Biden yeah. looks presidential. He looks yeah. good on a stage. He's tall and he's lean and he smiles and he's got the nice white hair and the clean, sharp teeth. You know, he... He's a tall guy and put him next to Trump and all of a sudden Trump isn't looming over a much shorter woman in a pantsuit. Yeah, no, I think this is a huge deal. I think it's it's terrible. It's terrible that it's that shallow for so many Americans, but they're going to look at the comparison. They're going to say, look at that tall, good looking, lean white guy versus that guy in the circus tent with the tablecloth covering his obesity. And we, have to, and we have to consider who, not who Matt, I mean, it's sort of who, who it is that might swing between uh, parties. And so when you, I think when you think, when you really step back and, you know, narrow it down, you have to recognize this is important. And also, you know, the, the past election, Trump came into it with a kind of, a kind, although it was heavily negative campaigning and all that, he also came into it with a kind of positive approach. He was having fun. He was, you know, he was not expecting or even wanting to win, as far as I understood. He just was looking to raise his profile and get a better deal on The Apprentice. And yeah. uh, so it was a very carefree kind of approach, positive. And uh, the being in the White House has not been kind to him. I mean, it's, he's, he's not made for it. He's not equipped no. for it. And it's taken a toll on him. And he's gotten, I think, more and more, um, you see him frowning and just looking unpleasant. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that, that might not come through to 35% of people who just think he's God for some reason. But there's other people who, you know, they're going to look at him next to Biden and like, well, this guy is smiling and positive. We had a good time under Obama and Biden. This guy's been miserable. It's been a disaster. You know, I, I think... You know, it's it's just you know I don't want to be too optimistic, but it's very hard to see that matchup looking good for Trump. But no, and, and let's take a, a key demographic, a demographic that really absurdly went to Trump in larger numbers than you could possibly imagine in 2016. Suburban soccer moms, you know, have a job, have kids, have you know a full life, have a husband, and a lot of them really hated Hillary. Yes, for sure. Um, And it was for nothing fair at all from my perspective. She stood by Bill Clinton. She didn't divorce him. A lot of the antipathy that I've seen around Hillary Clinton from that demographic came down to a factor that she didn't believe the way they'd like to believe they would behave. Yeah, you've got that. You've also got the meat. I mean, there was a 20 plus year smear campaign aimed at her ever since she was um, yeah. first There's lady. There's a lot of people who think she's a terrible human being. She's Satan in a pantsuit and none of that's true. She's actually, the more I learned about her in 2015, 2016, frankly, 
I just got more and more impressed with her over time. Uh, same here. And I, you know, I came into it with sort of a shallow understanding of who she was. And of course, a negative uh, connotation because a negative, you know, kind of impression, because that's the impression you're fed by almost everyone in the media um, for 20, 20 years or something. And, and then the more you learn about her, she's, she was, you know, as people said, she was the best the most equipped to be president of any candidate in history. She was yeah. insanely well-prepared, had been extremely effective. And they tried to pin corruption on her for 20 years and couldn't, which, you know, is a pretty stunning testament to her. You know, I'm sure, sure she made mistakes, I'm sure. But to be in public life, scrutinized that heavily for so long and never be, you know, it's not that she's got some kind of masterful, um, wizardry behind the scenes running the world as some people no. think it's because she just did things the right way she's brilliant and she cared and she had a lot of people around her that are cared and she did the work now i definitely did i mean you and i didn't agree with her i'm sure on, on certain policies and we oh, have yeah. we, she was too centrist for for our taste i'm sure but um but her so intention was, so was obama <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, but let's pivot to biden again just for a minute because there's three or four things that are going on with Biden. One is he was a stutterer as a kid. He has a speech impediment that he's overcome to be one of the most successful politicians in the United States. And that story's out there and people know that. You know, suburban soccer moms have kids with learning difficulties and speech impediments and shit. You're not gonna get a lot of sympathy with them by claiming that he's losing it when he can say, yeah, this speech and when it's, it's out there, he was, he overcame a stutter to become one of the most successful politicians. That's a heartwarming story for suburban soccer moms. He lost his son. That's a heart wrenching story for suburban soccer mom. His emotive links to that demographic are much greater than Hillary Clinton's ever were. But you, you bring up one interesting thing too. Those, you know, those difficult situations in his life, it's very clear he's become a much more uh, compassionate, sympathetic person from it. And that's one of his yeah. strengths as a politician. And he's just as a, as a human, you know, he, it's, there's nothing phony about how he deals with talking about loss. And, uh, you know, I, when you think about this period we're going through, how much loss it's going to create, how much people are going to feel down, uh, he's going to have just an innate ability to talk to people about um, about that. That obviously Trump, who doesn't seem to have uh, empathy, <laughs> um, yeah, is was, you know, it's actually funny. I was having a conversation yesterday. Um, one of the uh, um, you know national sales executives that I dealt with, uh, the glass tech firm that I dealt, you know, we worked on you know multi hundred million dollar proposals together uh, multiple times over, you know, 12 years or something. Um, but he's with a new um, firm and they're dealing, doing some pro bono data work with um, municipal governments. He wanted my input based upon some stuff that um, I published in Clean Technica actually about, you know, adventures in municipal data science. Um, recent article with uh, one of my collaborators, Blair Birdsell, who's an architect and data scientist. Um, or is in intersectional in that space. Um, and so, you know, my um, former sales exec buddy reached out and we were laughing and, you know, talking about something or another. And I said, yeah, you guys, you know, you never called me when you wanted someone schmoozed. <laughs> you called me when you needed someone to be 
weirdly brilliant about something that nobody else knew anything about. <laughs> Biden is the opposite of me. Like, I'm a wonk. I'm a deep, nerdy wonk. You don't call me up to get people warm and fuzzy and make, you know, make me, you know, if you need an emotional connection. But Biden has got that. And that sells in politics. That sells big time. You know, he's, yeah. I, I think that this is going to be a very different race. Biden doesn't have the baggage of a whole bunch of times, including you know, the lack of the right external genitalia that Hillary Clinton did. Um, and too many of the wrong type of external, you know, secondary sexual characteristics. He's going to be going up against a very different Trump, as you pointed out, and in a very different period. Like the things that Trump was going to get elected on, my 401k is doing great. Mm -hmm. yeah, not so much. So yeah. well, and all I'm, of that I'm... means, so going back to that, next year, natural gas, from a clean tech perspective, next five years are going to see much more volatile natural gas prices, likely higher. That's a cost of doing business. That's going to drive, oh, efficiencies for buildings and heat pump deployments for the next five years, regardless of who wins in November. If Biden wins, the volatility, the hedging you have to do against the upside of natural gas with a potential carbon price, with Kigali Amendment, um, with and with um, sorry with Paris Accord, you all of a sudden go, oh, that's going to increase. Um, you can see that the elimination of oil and gas leases, um, new ones on federal lands, is guaranteed, and then you know some of the potential for them to be not renewed is vastly increased and possibly some will even get shut down under a Biden administration. So all of a sudden your oil and gas on in American soil starts changing, which drives clean alternatives. Yeah, well, um, I think one of the most interesting things in, in energy for me has been, uh, we've seen solar and wind become the most competitive on average for levelized cost of electricity, um, based on cost, uh, lifetime cost, And, uh, but if you, I think it was University of Texas or Texas A&M, maybe uh, I think it was University of Texas had an interesting study, though, where if you get down to the county level or really narrow it down county by county across the United States, you had a kind of split between wind or in some cases solar being most competitive and natural gas being most competitive in about half the country or something. And you've seen, like, last year, wind had, I think, its best year ever in the U.S. 39% of new power capacity was from wind. Um, but this is really the potential to finally shake it up and shake natural gas off and see a dramatic increase. You know, we sort of had a kind of solar and wind doing well, around half, you know, new capacity yep. for a while, and it's just sort of been plateauing. But this is finally that option, you know, to kick the, br the bridge fuel off the off the. Well, if you think about it, if you're doing, if you're utility, one of the things you're doing is doing um, volatility projections of your fuel. And if I can see it, they can see it. This is not rocket science. Um, fuel volatility prices and hedging against increased costs, against increasing and more volatile annual fluctuations in natural gas prices is just going to become back into the industry norm. And that has a cost. Insuring against and hedging against um, volatility is expensive. And wind and solar PPAs aren't volatile. They're stable, they're cheap, and the hedging is easy. 
right? Yeah, it's you've got some meteorological stuff, but you're still down at you know uh, twenty dollars a megawatt hour PPAs for five to you know twenty years. It's dirt cheap energy, and we got all the uh, tools toolkit that we need to use it as well. Yeah. So well, I'd, I'd like to end with. Um two quick things i'd like to ask um one I, i'd just like to you to you know just for fun uh pick who you think will be the vp choice for biden and then second uh i would uh you you had on the list the weird reality that that, that uh, ron DeSantis has a high approval rate in, in florida <laughs> governor of florida and i haven't actually looked into and I, i'm a floridian uh, i try to sort of avoid reading about him because he drives I, I'm, i'm disgusted by the whole situation but um I'm, i haven't seen the polling around his approval rating i'm curious to just hear you talk a little bit more about that um, as well so we can close with those two topics sure um i, I i'm bad at picking vps but here's who i would want to be the vp i would want harris um i know you would want harris you're cheating oh <laughs> uh, but but what's an example let's talk about the signifiers she's Um, a person of color, she's a woman. So we've got two advantages that are bridging and, and increasing the ticket. She had a much stronger climate change so she plans, so she has a much stronger um, in with the Democratic base. And she's from, Joe, you know, she did it, was very successful in California. Um, and she talks credibly about punishing polluters through ethical means, which was something that you know, she and Bernie overlapped on, but her expression of it wasn't populist. It was, but it was, if you look at it, you can see Bernie voters going, yeah, she's going to go after those guys because she did it in California. You can see that through line very clearly, right? You know, Warren's challenges um, is, is, you know, much as I like her. I mean, she's like Clinton. Through the campaign that Warren did and through my analysis of her positions and stuff, I just grew to be very impressed with Warren. And I would happen That's funny her. because I feel like Harris suffers more of the risk of, um, I don't know really why exactly. I mean, I sort of, I know some instances why, but, but Harris got framed in the primaries as kind of a not true progressive, you know, her, her, oh, yeah. role, her role as a, as a, as the number two prosecutor in the, in the country was uh, at play a bit because they could dig up those cases where, you know, yeah. But it's not progressive, though. It's it's what are the signifiers? She'll do well in in California, which where the Democratic Party does well anyway. But she also has a lot of lot of pull in the um, redder parts of California, and there's still parts of California that are pretty red. Well, I I just I think their their biggest concern is losing Sanders voters, and I think yeah. they're much more likely to get. Um, Sanders voters with Warren than with Harris, but uh, but that's just me reading other know, people's impression. You know, it's a good question. What's going to work, right? And who's going to be most appealing to independents? What mix? Um, I I like Harris for a few reasons. One is she had the most statesman-like climate plan of any of them. She was already naming names of the people whose plans she was leaning into. She was leaning into. Um, Warren's SEC inclusion of risk and saying, we're going to use Senator Warren's legislation. I want to use this guy's legislation on this subject with these changes. And this guy's, she knows exactly what legislation to bring forward with a legislative agenda. She's very clear about it. And she was a bridge builder, which a VP is kind of nice to have. Um, 
but to your point, you know, she's not perceived as progressive, but Sanders voters, there, there's an interesting, there's a huge number of them that are populist, angry people who will vote for Trump unless they're given someone to be angry with. Yeah, and I think this this is, I mean, those and also the ones who just won't vote because they they don't, and I mean, and some of those people, I mean, they, they see everyone who wasn't Bernie basically as not adequate for whatever, you know. And they're, they're false equivalents, people. They think that there's no difference between Biden and Trump. And you kind of look at them and when I have run into them online and I go, how can you think there's no blue ocean between Donald Trump and the Republicans and Joe Biden and the Democratic Party. How can you not see the gulf, especially that's emerged since Biden and Obama first ran? When they it's first ex- ran, yeah, it's extremely disheartening. Yeah, um, but you know, we we have our own. But you, you were gonna you were gonna you were gonna highlight a good point between 2008 versus today, Biden. Sure. Um, let's let's do this again. Um, in 2000, Joe Biden in 2008 could have run easily as a Republican presidential candidate. He was to the right of Obama, and Obama was a lot further right than any of his um, language suggested. Their actual political campaigns in 2008 were about as right-wing as the Democratic Party ever got. It was farther right than Bill Clinton's campaign and farther right than any campaign since, you know, before the Dixiecrat, about the time the Dixiecrat split off, you have to go be, before that to find a weirder um, shift. Um, so the, the Democratic Party, like a lot of liberals, had been trending rightward with specific types of economic neo, uh, neo-libertarian policies, Blair in, in the UK. Um, and there was a good, there's a lot of good reasons for that. Um, global free trade is a positive um, the ties that bind through the, um, you know, the neoliberal expansion of democracies and treaties and trade agreements uh, since World War II um, have been incredibly beneficial for society globally. Um, they came with some downsides, which are manageable. Um, but they went a little too far. The Democratic Party got dragged to the right by the Republicans. The Overton window shifted. 2012, Obama and Biden in their campaign tacked back. There was a big, big bend. They, they were as far right in their campaign as anybody in the Democratic Party has been for 30 years. And then they turned left. And then in 2016, when Clinton's campaign ran, she'd been dragged a bit left by Bernie. That was the most progressive campaign out of the Democratic Party in two decades. Um, people don't think she, you know, think of her as a right-wing person, but Biden was really comfortable <laughs> over there in 2008. You know, he's, you know, he's learned, but being progressive is not his bread and butter. He's a, you know, conservative Democratic leader, but he's also a big tent Democratic leader, and he recognizes something really interesting. Um, so one of the conversations I've had with some Americans and with other people is, the United States is actually having a really good debate about what the right pragmatic blend of um, good fiscal governance, progress, social progress, environmental progress, and it's having a really solid, rock solid political debate about those weighty subjects with conservatives and progressives at the table. 
and it was called the Democratic Primaries. The Democratic Party represents the full spectrum of sane political discourse inside the United States. It represents parties like in Canada, it would be the Conservative Party of Canada up until relatively recently, and the Liberal Party of Canada. It's all inside the Democratic Party because the Republicans have gone so far off into crazy territory by international standards. Well, I mean, just basically disconnected from any real policy debate. I mean, they, they just basically want nothing to do with it. They want to block everything that goes through except for tax cuts for the rich and uh, approved judges. And it's, it's, they've really taken themselves out of the debate, which is quite fascinating, but quite disturbing too. Yeah, it's one thing I keep saying to anybody, any, any conservatives in the United States who listen to me, I say, same conservatives, please take back your party because we need a rich political discourse between right and left about real problems. Yeah, and I think some of the biggest conservative leaders of, of previous generations, uh, really great conservative intellectuals who I wouldn't agree with on policy, but, but are sane people, they've said, you know, several of them have said the Republican Party basically needs to die in its current form, and I'm voting Democrat because, you know, our party has basically gotten a cancer that it's not overcoming. So, you know, we need to start George over. W. Bush's, we need to George W. Bush's speechwriter, David Frum, you know, yeah, David Trump, Bill, Bill Crystal, uh, yeah. George Will, um, Charlie Sykes, Joe Scarborough. There's a lot of a lot of you know, people, and these are not these are not liberals. These are conservatives. Like I went through, you know, Will's recent statements, and you know him saying he's still very conservative. <laughs> so anyway, that's that, right? The the. Democratic Party has been tacking back to the center. They're being demonized for being left-wing extremists and not in line with the majority of Americans. But as you go through polling on position after position after position, when you excise labels from the actual policies, 85% of Americans like 85% of Democratic position on policies. It's only tribalism which is causing them, so many of them, to vote for Republicans. They're, as soon as you extract the policy from the labeling, you realize that the Democratic Party is a very centrist party. With, and it's a 2020 centrist party. It's, it's in this century, <laughs> which means gay rights, good. Marijuana legalization, good. Climate change, action required. You know, those kind of centrist things. Minorities need rights, you know, basic stuff. Uh, so it's going to be interesting to see what the campaign analysis for Biden's campaign is going to be, but it's going to be probably around where Clinton's is by international standards, which is pretty good. You know, it's a centrist, well, you know, because the entire politics of the world for Western democracies has shifted to what used to be progressive principles. Yeah, so I think you were going to highlight that basically his his campaign in 2020 here is dramatically more progressive than he was in 2008 or... or yeah. So he's, you know, people who yeah. are critical that he's too centrist, you know, need to get a handle on things. And they, they need to get a handle on... They're not going to in many cases, but... Okay, so let's pivot to DeSantis and close out. Um, so we've talked about Florida two or three times. Um, you know, he's... You know, DeSantis is... Scott's successor, and he's blaming a Republican for Florida's problems, which is not going to help 
Republican chances. But and he's doing really stupid stuff around the coronavirus more than not. But Floridians seem to be okay with that. His approval ratings for his handling of the coronavirus are nowhere near Cuomo's. I mean, it's like Cuomo has turned into a god king. Um, and hopefully he doesn't do what Giuliani did, because Giuliani after 9-11, people oh, actually said, oh, well, Giuliani, this guy's like got gravitas, and he's, he's there for us, and he feels our pain, and he's going to be strong. And you know, Cuomo is doing a Giuliani, except, as we discovered, hopefully, um, he's not actually a Giuliani, because Giuliani turned out to be so weird in so many ways. Um, but DeSantis is actually doing much better than Trump in terms of how Floridians perceive his actions around coronavirus, which isn't hard because Trump is leading from the behind in terms of exactly how not to handle coronavirus pandemic. He's kind of like the opposite of Jacinda Ardern out of New Zealand, like who gets on YouTube and records a video in her sweatshirt after putting her kids to bed to reassure New Zealanders. (laughs) It's like, Empathy Leadership 101 stuff out of, out of New Zealand. And DeSantis, who's not empathetic, they just seem to like him. It, one of the things that happens in crises, though, is people like authoritarians and they like someone, the, the stern father to be in charge. I, I compare and contrast DeSantis to Ontario's Premier Doug Ford. Now, um, you know, for our listeners, you know, 50% of whom are inside the America, in America, I'll just say that Doug Ford is the Toronto's okay. crack-smoking okay. mayor. <laughs> yeah. No, he's the crack-smoking mayor of Toronto's brother. So if you ever saw a pair of Tweedledum, Tweedledee, blonde, um, fat politicians out of Toronto, one of whom was pointed at as the crack-smoking one, well, the other guy was his brother. He's a classic of entitled white male privilege. He was born into a family where his dad had made a successful art label company, Deco Labels, I think they're called, and the family was basically millionaires. His dad had run for provincial government under a very conservative administration 20 or 30 years ago and was a provincial member of parliament, so political career. Um, and he put his, he gave his sons whatever they wanted uh, this, the Premier of Ontario was actually a, a second-tier hash dealer in the 80s. He actually had hash dealers who worked for him. Um, he went to university and quit, so he doesn't have a university degree. Uh, drives an SUV. He's kickboxes. And despite that, he's become the Premier of the richest, most populous province in Canada. It's like I was describing someone like that becoming the premier of California, the the governor of California. It's a really weird situation. This guy does not have the abstract thinking skills, the um, gravitas, or the judgment to make appropriate political choices 99 out of 100 times. But, oh, and... Here's how bad his judgment was. When one of the first actions his government took upon taking power a couple of years ago was to tear up 758 contracts that the previous governments had signed for renewable energy. They've so far completely, um, they've so far canceled two substantive wind farms. Uh, what is it? 36 turbines of you know 1.6 to 2.7 megawatts each between the two farms. 
on purely spurious political grounds. They've used legislation to shut this down. They've been, it's, they did buck a beer campaigning. Um, they hadn't been meeting their stuff. They defunded Toronto, the most populous and wealthy city in Canada, public health by $100 million a year just last year. This is how bad this government is, right? This is how bad Doug Ford's government is. It's horrific. And Ontario's, Ontarians are loving his handling of the coronavirus. So there's a lesson here. We've got this angry, florid dad, you know, this meaty 55-year-old white guy who's big and burly. But he's actually figured out that he doesn't know everything. Unlike other things, he's not incredibly arrogant about this subject. I have no idea why. He's actually listening to and giving deference to the public health experts in Toronto. And probably because Toronto was the Canadian epicenter for SARS in 2003. He and his family lived through that. So he knows that epidemics are bad. And he knows that he's not an expert. But he's a good angry dad. Um, there's an argument, um, a political characterization of framing, which I think you and I might have talked about, that Republicans like, you know, stern dads, stern father figures. And Democratic voters don't. And, you know, but this guy's a good stern dad. And in a crisis, in our culture, we're comforted by stern dads. Someone who tells people they're being bad, somebody who says, don't do that anymore. Somebody who reads the riot act, somebody who looks angry. Premier Ford's um, has, this is just kind of how weird this is and surreal. His sign language interpreter, which we have in Canada, um, is actually leaning in and using very angry arm gestures as he, as he interprets. <laughs> so, the way I describe it is that, you know, the way I've said it a few times is both Donald Trump and Doug Ford are tools. The difference is that Doug Ford is the tool for this job. He understands logistics. He's a good stern dad. He defers to people who actually know what they're talking about. Donald Trump is not the tool for this job. DeSantis is somewhere between them. No one can be as bad as Trump in this. And he's not rising to the levels that Doug Ford is surprising all of us with, but he's getting a bump. I, and I still, it, it still perplexes me that people love stern dads, but they love stern dads. So that's my take on DeSantis and Florida. I hope that's useful and contextual. Yeah, I'm afraid to say that probably he's going to come up again. <laughs> well, thank you for the, for the chat today. Um, hopefully people enjoyed it. Maybe got something out of it. Um, useful, uh, but definitely should have been good entertainment i think um so that's useful uh but uh yeah this is a you know, politics, the politics thing, chat right if you get it out in the next month then people will still be um you know in in physical distancing lockdown they're, oh, yeah. they're hungry for media yeah yeah no no we i'm gonna send it right after you so uh we we uh yeah, we, I'm, I, I'm afraid to think of how much things might change before the election, but um, I know, I know. It's, uh, it was fun talking through the primaries and, um, you know, uh, even though it's all over and there's uh, much of that discussion was, <laughs> was not particularly important for the future, it's, uh, it's again, you know, this is, this is politics, this is the world of politics, so it's we, fasc we, fascinating. Zach, we are members of the chattering classes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> 
Well, thank you. Uh, enjoy your physical distancing there and uh, your work on, on everything uh, under the sun. Uh, next yeah, it's what it is right now. So, okay. Uh, I, I didn't even talk about, um, you know, next time we're on, it'll probably be with A.R. Siders, who's the preeminent scholar of managed retreat in the face of climate change um, mm -hmm. in the United States. Cool. And she, she was, you know, a PhD out of Delaware. She's a, a lawyer. And um, I've been talking with her in the context of a project I'm doing with the Canadian government in terms of defining leading practices for managed retreat in the Canadian context from international uh, international experts in international literature and Canadian literature. And so, you know, that's just something else. I actually wrote the executive summary for the final report this morning at between 6.30 and 9.30, I think it was, um, you know, the first draft of it. So that's very top of mind. But yeah, that's just another thing I'm doing right now. Yeah, no, I think I think that's going to have relevance for the coming decades, not just years. So it's going to it be does. interesting it does. to start getting down that road, right? Yeah. Uh, well, enjoy uh, peace. We actually have... I actually have super rainy, um, gray weather here right now in Florida, finally. So um, I actually feel like I'm with you over there in Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not raining here right now, and we've got okay. blossoms. So. Okay. Okay. Uh, Zach, pleasure as always. Talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund clean tech talk.